players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Monastery Mentor, unexpectedly absent, basic players, and many others, battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat. They all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Raw on YouTube, Thurban University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the Eternal Glory podcast. I'm Phil Gallagher, joined by Bryant Cook and Brian Koval. How are you all doing tonight? Just delightful, there, Phil. Man. All right, we should just all redo. Right. We... <laughs> nope, that was great. We had the same lame answer, the same unexcited answer at the exact same time. I love it. Run it. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're all hanging in there. We're all We're all surviving. We're out there, you know, fighting the good fight with the donation deck lists, doing all sorts of shenanigans. But we'll, Phil, we'll get to that in a minute. I was told that nobody likes those and that we should quit doing them. <laughs> uh, all right. There we go. We'll get at least 10 down votes for that on Reddit. That's that's awesome. Actually, What's Reddit? <laughs> I thought it was pronounced read it. It's the recipe web website, right? I thought it was French. It's ready. So it's going to be that kind of night, huh? Out of the gates. Yeah. All right. Coming in hot. Thanks for listening, everyone. We're done for the night. Brian, what have you been up to recently? I've been slowly emerging from my house a little bit more and more. Uh, myself and uh, the lady are both fully vaccinated. Two weeks have come and gone. Um, we've been out to dinner three times now. Uh, we went to a movie with friends. I rented the theater for 20 people. It wasn't like a full ass, like, 180 person movie theater like there were 20 of us in the theater uh so I, I still felt okay with it um i'm visiting my parents this weekend and i've i learned after i made those plans that my grandma was also planning to visit them this weekend and nobody has seen my grandma in like 15 months because she's 91 years old and she is not messing around with covid <laughs> so she has been smartly living alone in her house uh with like check-ins and like grocery runs from my aunts and uncles but like she hasn't gone anywhere, so it's cool that I get the, the double whammy of going out of town, visiting my parents, and seeing my grandma. So I'm pretty stoked for all that. Nice. Sounds very wholesome. It is, yeah. All right, Brian, how about you? Um, I'm sure our grilling expert listener, Robert Wilson, will be thrilled for this news. I have pil pulled, I can't talk, my grill out of the shed it's back up. It's set up. I bought a brand new propane tank. So, Robert, you can quit sending me mean messages on Twitter about how grilling season is all year round. Uh, it's back. Uh, please stop sending me pictures of your grill. Other than that. <laughs> Wait, were we supposed to be sending you pictures of our grill? Because I also have been grilling all winter because there is no grilling season. Well, Robert never stops. So if you want to send me pictures of your grill, that's fine, too. Uh, I will. Uh, well, now it's now it's quote unquote grilling season, so uh, the, the pictures don't matter. But uh, yeah, I've been I've been grilling all winter. That's what it's for. I don't know. I just don't want my grill having snow on it. I live in Syracuse. We get like eight feet of snow a month. 
You get a cover. They make them. They're very cheap. Yeah, but then I have to shovel off my grill. Just grill in your shed or your garage. I don't know. Whatever you have with a roof, just I have crack an oven. it open. It's not the same. All right, enough of that. I'm getting my second vaccine uh, this upcoming week. I'm getting it over the weekend, I believe. Uh, I am ready to start doing all the things that Brian was just talking about, you know, like going places, eating in public, that sort of thing. Other than that, my life's pretty boring. How about you, Phil? Um, recently, I've just felt like I wanted a little bit of an escape. Like I've been spending a lot of time like between like just doing my job and doing magic content. So I just like wanted to sit on the couch and like dick around and play some video game. So the Switch has this SNES online thing where you can just go and play a bunch of old games. And so this weekend I just booted up like Super Mario World 3 and just like sat down and replayed, you know, a good chunk of a game from my childhood. And I've been enjoying the hell out of that. That's the one with the foxtail, right? Yeah. That's the one I played the most. That's a good one. As a kid, I had a Super Mario All-Stars. It did not have number one. So I had like a bunch of the offshoots of Mario's, like the strange ones, but then two and three. It just didn't have one. So I never played one as a kid. Yeah, I never owned this game. Like it was always the sort of thing like I would go over to a friend's house, start a new file and play it. So like I've played through the beginning of this game a whole bunch, but I don't know that I've ever played through like, you know, all the like secret alternate paths and stuff. So I'm I'm looking forward to like exploring that. Yeah, I played it a lot as a kid. Um, uh, the Super Mario World, the one after that, uh, is it? I forget the name of it. Like the the big one, the one with the cape, uh, like the the big Super Nintendo one. I don't know. It, it's the one that comes right after that, right? I'm not sure. Not a hundred percent. I well, like the one that you can speed run easily because of the cape, and you just fly over every level once you get to like the the second world. But uh. I played like zillions of hours of that and going back to like number three was a treat uh, once in a while uh, when I, I played with friends. Um, but uh, reconnecting with it via watching speedruns like in my adult life has been fun because uh, like I remember like, oh, this this ship was so hard and like I don't know how to navigate the bullets and it's a side scroller and the bullets are coming in off screen and you're going up and down while you're side scrolling. And like, I remember my child brain trying to make sense of all of that motion. And like these speedrunners are just, they just like know where the bullets are going to come from. And they just, uh, I, I watched one where the, it was a, a live one from um, GDQ where during a, a side scroller level, the the speedrunner like put the controller down and went out and took selfies with the crowd, then came back <laughs> to pick it up when it was done side scrolling. I was like, that that is swag, <laughs> love it. Yeah. Um. I, so one of the games I played a lot when I was a kid, well, not a kid, I guess it was like eighth or ninth grade, uh, was Super Monkey Ball for the GameCube, uh, which is this game where you roll a monkey that's in a ball to an exit. And I watched the games done quick for that. In which the the speedrunner was like, yep, okay, so what we need to do in this level is we need to repeatedly pause and unpause the game so that we can hit this exact one frame window so that I can do this skip. And you just watch them do it on the first try and it's just like, how? How? (laughs) Yeah, speedrunning is a trip. Uh, I I love the ones where they're like, there's like small hacks like that where like if we pause on pause here, we can hit this frame. I hate the ones that are like... uh, I'm going to reset the game back to the start menu like every uh, minute or two to skip cutscenes. 
Like you can skip through the cutscene, but the game remembers where you are physically. And like, that's boring to me. But I, I do like the the cheesy ones like that. Like just, just little in-game things. Um, I have found that I am the age where Nintendo 64 was like the big hot new system when I was like prime video game playing age as a kid. And none of those games hold up. <laughs> they are all <laughs> terrible. And Golden, I would like a word. Uh, have you played that game in the last 15 years? Because I played it at a birthday party a year and a half ago, and holy guacamole, it is terrible. Really? I played it like it right after horrendous. college, and I thought it was fine. It is horrendous. Like, uh, after just like putting any amount of minutes into like Borderlands or any any modern game at all, uh, you're just like, oh my god, how did we live like this? <laughs> Goldeneye was so bad. Uh, but, uh, like, uh, Super Mario, uh, Mario Kart for N64, horrendously broken. Like, every track has some way to, like, skip from the start straight to the finish. <laughs> it's, and it's, like, hilarious to watch, because as a kid, that was my game. Like, I would invite people over, like, challenge me to Mario Kart. I don't care. Like, I used that as a pickup line in college. I would be like, you want to come back to my place and, like, lose to me at Mario Kart? And and people would be like, oh, yeah, good luck. I'm pretty good. And and then it was never close because I knew, quote, all the secrets. I didn't know all the secrets. I knew like one out of 10 secrets and it was still horrendously broken. Uh, I like the idea that Brian in a bar just like, you want to come back to my place, play some Mario Kart and that working like that just sounds awesome. Uh, it had a surprising success rate. I mean, you don't just lead with that, but like you get talking <laughs> and then it's like. Yeah, I like video games. Cool, me too. What system did you play? Like N64, like my family had one. Oh, that's awesome. Did you play Mario Kart? Like, yeah. Are you any good? Yeah. I bet I I bet you're not. Like, let's go. And then it like converts. Like you, you pick your spot, but I mean it works. I've had a lot of second dates that like were basically like, hey, let's go. Mario Party. You know, Donkey Kong Country, whatever. Like, let's do it. Yeah, that that was the uh, Netflix and chill before Netflix. All right, so uh, why don't we <laughs> head back to the discussion a little bit. Uh, donations. Thank you, Eric Taylor, Henrik Korkutz, and Matthew Hapert for supporting this podcast about Mario Kart. All right, uh, so I guess we should actually talk about magic. Um, I'll, I'll start with our MTG updates. Um, I'm getting an intro made for my YouTube channel, um, which is pretty exciting. Uh, it's got a got a nice little uh, animation to it. We're currently working on getting the the sound right. Um, I'm super excited about it. Brian's got his like super rock and roll intro, and uh, and I, I need to keep up. Yeah, uh, I'm actually getting that cleaned up right now. Like, uh, I wasn't going to talk about this because I honestly forgot about it. But uh, some a a good Samaritan who watches my channel, like uh, if you watch listen to my intro music, there's like a little skip right at the end. And that's because I had to condense a two minute and 45 second song into a 24 second intro. So like, but there's like a sick, like a uh, guitar scratch, like at the beginning that cues into the music, but then you can't just cut it off 24 seconds in. So I spliced to the end of the song where it like fades out to the beginning and there's kind of a pretty obvious skip and somebody offered to clean it up for me. And I was like, yeah, sure. Thanks. So uh, that's that's happening right now. They sent me like the first draft with some options. Today. Yeah, my my intro started out the same way. 
one of my longtime viewers was just like, hey, do you want an intro? I'll do it pro bono. And I was like, yes, I'm interested, but like I'm going to pay I'm going to pay them in donation deck lists because they're a regular donor to the channel, because like, while I love getting things for free. I also want to like pay artists for their work because like, holy shit, I can't do that stuff. And I appreciate it so much. Yeah, I, I'm not going to let this person do it for free, but uh, they they did offer and it, it was nice. I've had some really fun YouTube content recently. Um, someone donated for a Phyrexian Dreadnought Eater of Days combo deck list that abused like Torpor Orb and the new Strixhaven card Strict Proctor to cheat these giant fatties into play early. And it was a lot of fun. Eater of Days, Phil. That's from Darksteel? Uh, that sounds about right. Uh, I think it's a 9-8 flying trampler. For four and mana. Went for four mana. And when it ETBs, you skip your next two turns. So you will not believe this, but uh, you'll you'll believe the front half. I played Magic pretty actively when that set came out. People were convinced that card was broken. They're like, this is, this is going to be ban worthy. They're like, four mana 90 or whatever it is. Like, it's way too good. They were like, do they know that Illusionary Mask is still legal? Just like, this is better than Juzamjin. Like, people were losing their minds, Phil. Uh, what part of that am I not supposed to believe? The part where the average person doesn't know how to assess magic cards off the spoiler? Because I believe that. <laughs> Remember Opposition Agent? Wow! <laughs> Coming in hot. Reeple Cheap gets in front of the keyboard. And just like <laughs> starts coming for us. Love you, Reaple Cheap. Keep working with the curses. Yeah, I mean, if you want to dedicate your life to being a mono black chrome mox dark ritual ancient tomb player, opposition agent is for you. Anyone else, put it down. Stop. Get some help. Michael Jordan meme. Yeah. Um the other th really cool idea i played recently was a court of grace deck that's the mono white one that can make spirits or angels um someone made sort of a hybrid like hate bears slash court of grace control deck that felt like a vintage deck in that you were just trying to like power out archon of ameria and things of that nature and just hope your opponent can't deal with it and it went really well uh, deck had too much mana. It had like 28 mana sources or something like that, and I just flooded a lot, but I still ended up putting up really good results. Nice. Most importantly, and a PSA to all the MTGO users out there, Harmonic Sliver is fixed! It works off show and tell now! I read an actual comment today, Phil, after this was announced. Show and tell just got a lot worse. And I was like... <laughs> what like you mean it works as it was intended to now and i was like yeah jpa surely isn't going to win anymore wink wink nudge nudge uh, i love that it's specifically harmonic sliver too like there are better versions of that effect now unless you're like in slivers yeah Dan daniel noons you know it, he, he won his battle finally get it I don't know how many years he has been reporting that bug, but it's, like, legitimately something like five or six. Well, it took them, like, a year to fix the Leovold Storm Trigger Tendrils bug, so I'm not shocked. Uh, since I'm already talking, I guess I'll continue talking. Uh, last night, I bought into Historic Storm. I opened up Magic Online Arena, and, uh, well... Magic Online or Arena. Magic That's Arena. Whatever. Program. Words are difficult. I can't talk. 
bad skill to have for a podcaster. But I opened up Arena and I built a storm deck and I said, ah, I need 19 uh, rare wild cards to finish this deck. I dropped $108 after tax into my account and still came up three wild cards short. Um, How many uncommon and common wild cards do you have, though? I bet it's hundreds. Over 100 of each. Yeah. Like the 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 fact that you can't like dust it or like trade them up or anything is just horrific. Like <laughs> I I think I have like thousands of commons, hundreds of uncommons, dozens of mythics, and zero rares at baseline in my account. Yeah, it's miserable. And then people, so the reason I bought into it was people would message me going like, "Can I pay you for a donation deck for historic?" Absolutely not. The twenty five dollars you give me does not cover wild cards. Like I'm sorry. Um, so like I plan on recording a few historic storm videos cause people keep on asking for them, but like, I'm just not going to play your deck list. I can't afford that. Um, but the one thing is I was able to start playing last night at like 11, 1 AM comes and I'm like, Oh, I feel like I've only played two matches. It was just like two and a half hours later. And I was just like super into clicking, uh, on Mizzix's mastery and mine's desire and all that fun stuff. Nice. So, uh, PSA for you, um, it's worth firing back, like, if you want to buy me into the deck, I'll play it, because I did that once with, uh, it was a commander request, and I didn't have commander cards, this was before Card Hoarder was sponsoring me, and I I looked it up and I was like, ah, sorry, this is gonna cost me like $175 to play this deck, and the person was like, no problem, homie, I spend more than that on beer, and just fired in $175. (laughs) It's like, all right, <laughs> we're in business then. Nice. I had one person do that for like a green-white sort of life gain deck that was sort of adjacent to what I was playing in Historic. They were just like, yeah, give me a ballpark for what it's going to cost you and I'll, I'll pay for it. Those are the, the real MVPs out there keeping us content creators fed. Definitely. Like, So I felt guilty because it hit like the 10th person in one week asking me to play Historic Storm, and I just decided I should quit being a curmudgeon and just do it already. Um, but on the legacy front, I've been testing with the Witherbloom command. I uploaded one video where I unfortunately went 2-3, uh, and then I've played a few leagues after that where my success has been pretty good, and then unfortunately a very average uh, challenge finish. But I've been really, really impressed with the Witherbloom command so far. I won't lie. Upon recording my first video with it, I reread the card and it's even better than I thought. I thought it was destroy non-land permanent with converted mana cost one or less. It's two. It hits fear of resistance and no rod and all these other cards. And I was just like, what? I've been like so excited for this card that I thought didn't hit those. And now it hits those two. So I can't talk and I can't read, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You just got fo- so fixated on a killing deafening silence. Exactly. Yeah, that's all we needed. But now it does more. All right, uh, speaking of being in our happy places, uh, I recorded a Shark Still video this week, and I've played almost exclusively donation decks for probably three, four weeks now, and I like it. I like the variety, but... Wow, did playing Shark still remind me how much easier it is to do something you know, uh, and, and something that's like coherent and you've really put the reps into and the work into tuning the deck and just like you know where all the pieces go and like ah, uh, it felt so good uh, and made it just made me so happy. Um, though 
the sad news is that I think that that league with Shark still is the death knell for Court of Cunning. I've been trying to make it work, probably harder than anyone, the the Courts of Cunning and Grace, but I think that Standstill is just the way to build the Sharknado deck, unfortunately. But Standstill is also sweet, so it's not that bad. There's still good news. You get to play Standstill. Okay. Is is Standstill actually a playable legacy card, though? Like, I, I want to go here. I've I've played maybe three or four Standstill decks in the last couple of months, and I've been finding that standstill is like really clunky in the opening hands a lot of legacy decks are making like very meaningful turn one and turn two plays and it's harder to play those early standstills on the board i've also found a handful of opposing decks have been able to win under a standstill and i haven't been super impressed by that card it just feels like i was working too hard so uh, a couple of points to that. Um, naturally, like your deck has to be built to answer those sort of things. Like uh, I, I don't know exactly what happened in all your matches, but um, I know you were playing Yodaro, and like is it is significantly less equipped to deal with a turn one thing than Azorius is. Uh, like just sorts of plowshares, uh, catches a lot of things, or uh, and. You have to be willing to just force of will anything that happens on turn one to get that turn two standstill down because you'll recoup the cards. Uh, also, the alternative, which is the play pattern that I think is better, that I think a lot of people forget, is like the turn six standstill. Like, just play a normal game. Just put standstill in your hand, pitch it to force, who cares? Like, I don't know. And, and just like play a control game. And then on like turn six, go Supreme Verdict standstill. And then then that's where you lock it in. Uh, like that's that's generally how my games have been going. Um, there are definitely matchups, especially if you're on the draw where standstill can be a, a stinker and like don't be afraid to board down to two of them. like just cut them if they're bad in the matchup. Uh, if you're gonna lose the field of the dead under a standstill, like board it out. Uh, bring in the back to basics in that spot. Like you you need a plan for that sort of stuff, but I was really happy and impressed with my standstill performance this week i would like to note uh two things i know that i bring this card up a lot because it's uh super fucking lame but force negation it provides additional cards to pitch to force negation but also force negation hits aether vial on turn one meaning that you just have more free effects to stop something that would get underneath your standstill so it works both ways yeah. Yep, yeah, you got to play the Force of Negations on top of the Force of Wills and just be ready to spew value early on. Brian, I thought of you or, this week. Or just wait till later. I was reading a Reddit oh, that's thread. Nice. Yeah, I never think of you until I read these Reddit threads. And uh, Oh, great. This is the association I want. Exactly. Someone said, I think Mana Drain would be fine to be unbanned. And my first thought wasn't <laughs> just like Mana Drain into Batter Skull or Mana Drain into Jace. All I could think of is you Mana Draining some stupid four drop and just casting your Shark Typhoon on turn three and just clapping. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> so the sick joke about that, I, I appreciate the meme and I appreciate the shout out. But the sick joke about that is it would just be better to cycle into a bigger shark than to cast your shark typhoon and that is almost universally true uh i i think i actually played a, a sharknado mirror in in the standstill league where my opponent lost because they took an open turn to resolve their shark typhoon and i was just like whatever cycle mine i have a four four you have a series of one ones maybe like whatever 
it, it's just almost always better to lock in your profits, get the cantrip, and like get the big shark, keep things moving forward, play at instant speed. <laughs> just casting that card is so dumb. Yeah, I remember casting it once, and I, I think the words I said were, I'm so dead that the only way I can possibly win this game is if everything goes right with this card resolving, and then I like force of will afterwards. And that yep. and both those things happened. It was just like, oh my god, we got so lucky. Like they did they just like didn't pyroblast it, they didn't daze it, like it, it magically resolved. Yep. Yeah, if you can resolve it with Force of Will backup, and like the Force of Will can't protect it to resolve. It has to resolve, then Force of Will forces their like sorcery speed answer. Then you get a five five. Like that that sort of recoups it. But even then, you've two for one to yourself to answer the thing that you zero for one to yourself to put into play when you could have two for ones to make a five five shark and still have your force of will around like it's it's just really bad don't do it folks it's not right even when you think it's right it's not um finishing up the standstill comment from earlier yes i was i played blue red standstill twice and then i played a blue green based standstill deck the other time and I and probably having Swords to Plowshare, like not having access to Swords to Plowshares probably just made that card feel so much worse in the early game than it does in your builds. Yeah, let me tell you about blue and green's ability to answer creatures. <laughs> it's not very good. Those cards are literally known for not being able to answer creatures very well. Yeah. Uh, green Green's removal in the color pie is making your big creatures fight their smaller creatures. And I bet you didn't have a lot of creatures either. Yeah, I had I had Uros and I had uh Jolvali, the the thing that makes cats when you draw oh, two the, cards. The two drops, yeah. yeah. That card is yeah. nice. It was it was a spicy brew. I was recording a, a vintage showcase and my round one opponent was on standstill. Uh they had an Uro, and for a quick second I was like, oh man, escape is so broken with standstill. And then I was like, I should Google this. No, it's it, it is not broken with standstill at all. So if you're under that impression that Uro and standstill are best friends, that is not true. Uh, was anyone under that impression? Except I you? was for like a solid five seconds. Yeah, escape clearly says you may cast this card from your graveyard for it is, its escape cost. It's right there in the reminder. So text. Brian, the key to playing magic is you read something once, and that's what it does for the rest of your life. So yep, Wither Bloom Command exactly. Exile a One Drop. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I played against Standstill in a Vintage League. Also, I recorded a PO League with uh, Ganari's PTQ winning list, and I, I had a game against Standstill where uh, in game one I had Snapcaster Mage in play, and they just cast Standstill, and then they, they took like fourteen from the Snapcaster Mage, and then uh, it, in game two I, I like checked their hand with Probe. We had some early exchanges. I checked their hand with Probe. It's like land, land. And I'm like, okay, they're dead. Next turn. They draw for turn. It's standstill. And I'm just like, I'm going to ignore that and play like they didn't just draw standstill. And I just like Mystical Tutor for Tinker, Tinker for Blightsteel Colossus, go into their fresh four cards. And then they just die. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, my last thing I want to say, magic wise, uh, I have pre-registered for the Legacy Pit Legacy Open, which... uh, will be the first time I leave my house to play Paper Magic the Gathering since uh, March of 2020. And that's in September. So I'm hoping the world it's like okay to travel across state lines by that point and we don't get like relapsed into other strains of the virus or whatever. But like, I am pretty excited to go to that. And uh, they 
they did the right thing when their event sold out they up- upped their prize pool pretty significantly so uh thanks for doing that legacy pick. yeah uh i signed up as well brian so i will see you there and our blue ho- or purple hoodies my bad and uh yeah our official merch exactly but i was i didn't feel good signing up for an event where the prize payout compared to what they took in was so skewed and uh, i'm glad to see that the pit fixed that yeah i'm not gonna lie i didn't look i didn't look at the prizes or the entry fee i was just like yep i'm going (laughs) i need it yeah i i don't know that i'm quite comfortable with like large magic crowds quite yet like i'm just not there yet i am i am getting the itch for some competitive magic though I think uh, once summer hits and I'm not actively teaching, I think I want to play in a couple of challenges, you know, brush off the dust, probably play some vintage. Phil, well, that's nice. the thing. This event's in September. By September, you're going to be like eating people's legs trying to get to them to play competitive magic with you. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's okay to err on the side of caution. I also hope that the Legacy Pit and anyone running events in the next few months uh has a a mask policy like i i will probably wear my mask whether they expect you to wear them or not but i don't know lead by example i guess but i i know that like 80 percent of the room won't wear them if they don't have to i just can't wait to tell the my first opponent like don't fucking touch my stuff yeah don't touch my deck don't touch my dice no you can't borrow my pen no i don't have a piece of paper for you come prepared I honestly what I can't wait for is me having to tell every opponent to play faster because it's been two years since anyone played paper magic and I have to tell people that anyway when we play because I'm probably going to be on some ponderous blue control deck and I'm going to be playing quickly and they're not. I like the idea of like buying just like a giant glass protective thing and carrying it with you in between rounds. Just like you sit down, you place your giant glass protector between you and your opponent, but it also comes along the side. So that way the people next to you can't breathe on you. You're like, this is my area and please don't invade it. I'm getting some serious bubble boy vibes here. Yeah, there was a a Tom Green sketch back when Tom Green was a relevant comedian. Uh, It was it was called the SAMSI, the Space Age Mobile Smokers Environment where it was basically just like a plexiglass cube that he wore like over his shoulders. There were like shoulder straps and he just walked around in this plexiglass cube and he would walk into non-smoking establishments and just smoke in his cube. And then when people would try to kick him out, he'd be like, no, no, I'm in a Samsi. It's fine. Uh, So like, it's like the reverse of that. Like I want my, my clean air in here, but I also feel like I would choke on my own uh, exhalation eventually. I don't know. All right, are we Hopefully ready to just wear their masks? Are we ready to dive into talking about uh, control now that we've uh, talked about control a little bit already? I guess if we have to. Yeah, that's fair. It's only been thirty minutes. I guess we can start the the topic. So last week I made sort of a, a th- not quite a throwaway comment, but it wasn't really the topic about like the rock paper scissors in the blue control deck metagame, where like Bug seems to dumpster Grixis because they can't answer Uro. Grixis dumpsters blue white because they can't answer pyroblast and then blue white gets source of plowshares and rest in peace dancer uro out of bug and it was just sort of like a cool little dance that the was happening in the blue decks and we decided to expand that conversation to just talk about control in general and we're going to start the conversation with uh the big blue decks like what what colors offer when they get paired with blue and what wedges and shards offer as well and then uh, we're going to 
pivot into non-traditional control, like things like death and taxes. And then uh, that that's where we're going to go with this. Like, uh, what does control mean and how do you do it in legacy? So uh, let's get into the blue decks because that's a, a pretty obvious place to start. Um, so obviously the blue control core package is like the brainstorm ponder force of will like those you're gonna see those usually as four ofs in every deck uh, unless you're specifically callum smith who plays three force of will and one force of negation uh, but otherwise you're gonna see the four force of wills then you get uh, the other hard and soft counters the snapcaster mage jace narset hall breacher the other cantrips the preordained sportance predicts uh Brazen Borrower, Shark Typhoon, Court of Cunning, Counterbalance, like all that sort of stuff. That's the blue shell. You know it. We've all seen it. So let, let's do the low-hanging fruit here. Why do you want to play these blue cards? Just at like the super macro level, what do these blue cards offer you that like you won't have, say, if you're playing like a mono red deck or a mono white deck? Card selection. Consistency. Yep. Those are two ways to say the same thing. And it, it's that brainstorm ponder... Uh, Boomers might call that the cantrip cartel. Uh, that's terminology that used to get used. And uh, it, it's just true. Like, if your deck has Brainstorm in it, you're going to have a more consistent experience than if your deck doesn't have Brainstorm in it. And that is just a fact. Uh, the, the cost is that you have to spend mana brainstorming. You have to spend time brainstorming. And Brainstorm is kind of a high skill card. So you have to know how to brainstorm. So, like, there, there is some work that goes into it. Um, it's It's the classic, like, uh, like compared to that mono red deck, like the blue deck, I drew brainstorm. They drew lightning bolt. Who's actually dealing damage to the other player? But over time, over those dead games, like the brainstorm and the ponders are going to find you what you need. So that that that's the base blue. But the blue doesn't do everything. Like blue no. blue is probably the best color in legacy, and you shove it in most of your decks for like the consistency and the like sheer flexibility of cards like force of will and force mitigation but like blue doesn't do things very well on its own there's very very few mono blue decks in legacy um high tide is something that exists the mono blue delver is something that exists i was going to say it has the most aggressive creature ever printed yeah, if you're willing to play your deck full of spells. We've heard your rant about Delver of Secrets before. The Urza Wild Echo deck doesn't even get played. is kind of a two-color deck, though. Like, in spirit. I'm a, I'm a big believer in that, like, the colorless soul lands, like Ancient Tomb and City of Traders, really are... It's, it's like adding another color to your deck in terms of mana base strain and utility. Bryant's aggressively shaking his head, but I agree with you. The Mono Blue Dig Through Time Omnitel deck was not a two-color deck. It played, like, two City of Traitors and just murdered fools. Oh, that that's a different thing. Phil's talking about the four Ancient Tomb, three City of Traitors. Like, like Chalice Urza of the Void-based decks. decks. Okay. Yeah, uh, like, splash it, like dropping a couple City of Traitors in your show-and-tell deck is a different thing. So, uh, we actually had this conversation a little bit already with the, the standstill experience playing blue-red and blue-green, where compared to blue-white, with the swords to plowshares, just like not having those. Um, did the Yudaro build of Standstill, the the blue red version, have lightning bolt in it? Yes. Uh, was it a four of? Uh, it was either a four of or a three of. And let me tell you, it felt real bad that my removal did not answer everything. Um, <laughs> the first time I played the deck, the deck had like 
two answers to an Uro once it hit the table. Uh, we, we made some changes the second time around in order to compensate for that weakness. Right. So fun fact for you, the original Landstill deck was created in Syracuse, New York by Rick Ajiro, and it was a blue-red standstill deck for Bolt because they were convinced that Bolt was a better remo- removal spell than Swords to Plowshares. Oh, how things change. So blue doesn't do everything. Let's talk about what the different colors offer to blue. Um, Phil, you want to talk about green? Yeah, sure. I've been playing a decent number of Uro decks in various degrees of jankiness. One of the biggest draws to green right now, at this exact moment, is Uro. It's just one of the more powerful things that you can be doing. It is an awesome control finisher. It draws you cards, it lets you make land drops, it's a threat that's recursive and a little bit sticky. That's an awesome place to be. And that uh, life gain is not nothing. That's the difference between a Merit Lage hit and not a Merit Lage hit. That's a Delver attack. Like, that three life. It's so much. A throwback for you. In a lot of ways, if you look at Uro, it's similar to an old, old, old Landstill card that used to see play Eternal Dragon. It was that win condition that would just keep on coming back over and over, and in the early game, it helped fix your mana. Yeah, uh, I was just getting into Legacy when Eternal Dragon was a playable card. It it died off pretty quick uh, once I got once I really started getting into the format, but I still have it in my binder from when I was in you know, early college assembling my you know, Legacy playable bot collection yeah just recursive threats in general and control decks have so much value yeah and value might be a good thing to just sum up what green does sylvan library awesome it draws you cards even better with uro veil of summer it's your cantripping pyroblast of sorts your life from the loam is a draw three that can also you know work towards making an uro better ice fang coatl just trade with a creature draw a card and of course, the best sideboard card in the format, Carpet of Flowers, which is good against most decks. Isn't it weird if you look back on how Phil just said green is the value color? And if you look back at 10 years ago, I don't know if anyone would have said that. Yeah, Benny Smith, the uh, the commander writer on Star City Games, I used to read his stuff all the time in college. And he made a whole career out of complaining about how unplayable green was. And just, just well, what happened was the the philosophy shift like green was always the creature color and everyone else got spells and then the the design philosophy shifted that creatures are more dynamic we want the game to be about creatures we want the game to be about permanence and green was already just three quarters of the way there they just started stapling like draw a card onto a bunch of green things and it's like oh crap this was just hiding under the surface the whole time yeah like so many green creatures have that are just like a little too expensive for legacy still like sneak their way into play through something like Nick fit um, that can like make use of those large creatures from time to time. And I look at all the text on those green cards and it's just like, excuse me, this elder Gargaroth can do how many things? Oh yeah. And it's when it attacks or blocks. I, I believe so. Yep. Yep. It, I, I promise. I, I play, lost to that card a lot in my pro tour testing last year. Uh, yeah. Elder Gargaroth questing beast, like, uh, they're really pushing creatures hard these days, and green was already pretty close. So uh, green definitely has some value in it these days. Um, I'll talk about white, since I have some experience playing blue and white decks. Uh, Swords to Plowshares we've talked about. That unconditional, the card's gone, exile, goodbye Uro, feels good. Supreme Verdict, that that's one of my pet cards. I, I don't think 
like it's not like a secret in legacy but i think i play more of it than anyone and i love it uh terminus teferi council's judgment monastery mentor hello uh dovin's veto uh you you get the the low cost caracas like any deck can play caracas we've seen caracas out of rug delver and and mono black decks and whatever but you actually get to tap it for mana in this deck in white which is great uh, out of the sideboard, you get Rest in Peace, Deafening Silence, Containment Priest, Meddling Mage, Moat, uh, Stony Silence, if you like. like the, White has some of the best sideboard cards, and anyone who plays Modern would know that. Like uh, In the early days of Modern, everyone was splashing White because you got all of these legacy playable answers out of the sideboard, and it white is just a great sideboard color i'm glad you mentioned that like it's definitely the the strongest put uh pairing with blue because of all those effective things like blue has always really struggled with permanence and white just has the best answer to all those permanents i also think that when you pair your counter spells that you have from blue with these permanent based really strong sideboard hate cards it puts your opponent into this tricky spot where they have to respect multiple different kinds of things. You know, your duress effects aren't going to hit, you know, the rest in pieces or the deafening silences that are already on the battlefield. But if you don't duress me, I'm going to force your chain of vapor on my deafening silence. So like uh, it it gets a really nice pinch when you combo uh, blues stack control with white sport control. I'll tell you, I struggled for years before they printed a rep decay. I would try wipe away. I tried cross and grip. Those cards just weren't playable. And eventually, I just like took solace in the fact that I had to play chain of vapor and pray or echoing truth and just like hope to get lucky. Yep, abrupt decay, very powerful, powerful card. We're gonna talk about that one in a little bit. Uh, uh, Brian, tell us what black offers. Well, there's this thing called discard, Brian. And uh, most notably, Hemdetorak, that black control decks play. And then a worse version of Ice Fang Waddle. You might not have heard of this card. It's not that playable anymore. But Baleful Strix? Are you too familiar? But the, the downside, it's an artifact, so it dies to shatter. Uh, there's Gurmag Angler, uh, Fatal Push, the Black Swords to Plowshares. Before Fatal Push, I, I'm going to go back here a little bit. Have you guys ever tried casting Vendetta or Ghastly Demise? Fatal Push is such an upgrade. I was just going to say Ghastly Demise. Yeah. Yep, I have played quite a few Ghastly Demises. I've been playing Standstill uh, back when it was Bug Deed Still. You had Pernicious Deed innocent in your Standstill deck. You actually were killing with Factory. Yep, Innocent Blood, Ghastly Demise. Oh, Fatal Push is a, a godsend. Yeah, really big upgrade. Uh, Edicts. Uh, I guess now we're playing Liliana's Triumph, but yeah, Edict Effects, Plague Engineer, Cling to Dust, recent upgrade, uh, especially if you're not playing a uh, more effective Splash Color. I think it's best in Grixis, but if I wasn't on Grixis, I probably wouldn't be playing main deck Cling to Dust, maybe a cyborg. And then uh, Liliana of the Last Hope, but I'll be honest, I think Liliana sort of died in 2018. Like we saw some SEG opens where Liliana was really effective in Grixis control, and I think with the 2019-2020 power creep, Liliana sort of fell by the wayside. And she's still one of the best things you can do in black, though. Uh, I know we're going to talk about what you can do better uh, when we get to the the shards and wedges, but uh, just in black, it, Liliana is a uh, value engine permanent that stays in play and pairs with your blue cards, much like the Rest in Peace, much like the Deafening Silence that we just talked about. Like if you can play Protect the Queen with your Force of Wills and your counter spells and just tick Liliana up, she'll win the game on her own. So that is something that black offers to the blue. Parent. I'll say this. 
one of the things about Liliana's throughout history is they've always been very difficult to answer. So control decks, especially in the control mirrors, they're not easy to get off the table, which allows them to take over the game more easily. Right. They yep. are also a little bit more narrow than a lot of other planeswalkers. So the the fl- the floor and ceiling on something like Liliana the Last Hope is so much different than something like say a Dak Faden or a Jace the Mind Sculptor. Like right. when your Liliana the Last Hope is bad, it it pluses for what five turns before it actually does anything and then it wins the game and you're just getting nothing in terms of value out in the meantime and then in other times like you get paired against goblins and it's just like haha i plus and vindicate and it's disgusting yeah and uh we're we're going kind of deep on liliana the last hope here but i i actually really appreciate planeswalker designs that give you some tension in decision making like uh like Jace the Mind Sculptor. Oh, nothing else is going on. I'll brainstorm. Now, obviously, Jace is a, a great card, but uh, like even Dak, it's just like, yeah, I'm going to plus this thing one way or the other. Oh, loot's never bad. And then, uh, but like Liliana the Last Hope, if you are just like ticking up in a control mirror with no creatures, at some point you'll have to consider, do I minus to rebuy my Baleful Strix and get another card? Or do I just commit to getting her ultimate? Because that will win the game. But like, will I get to the ultimate if I don't? cantrip now and get on board now so there is like a little bit of decision making tension that the card doesn't play itself which i appreciate there have been a few times where i'm playing miracles and i do play miracles sometimes in leagues where i've beaten liliana of the last hope after it's ultimated and you feel like a god like you're like i just overcame the world here i am yeah i i beat uh it was like right when whatever set that was whatever innistrad set that was uh came out uh eldritch moon maybe and or Dark Ascension, and somebody ultimated her, and I was on Jeskai control in Modern. And this was like that, like, miserable, slow, like, wins with Celestial Colonnade when everything, when when the dust is settled, Celestial Colonnade's gonna deal 20. God, I love like, that deck. <laughs> that It was a delight, but I beat a Liliana Emblem somehow. I think it involved, like, a supreme verdict like every third turn like when the zombie horde got big enough i verdicted and i had enough lands that i could just poke in with celestial colonnade one more time and i just like barely tempoed it out i think i finished them off with an electrolyze at the very end like attack you from six to two and ka-chow like oh felt good but wow is that speaking hard. of red cards like electrolyze the last splash color that you can play is red you get pyroblast red elemental blast which are two of my favorite cards i love them lightning bolt and uh blood moon but i think there's a card missing off the list here which would be from the ashes uh very similar to blood moon but it's really really devastating against decks like cloud poster lands that play very few basics yeah red gives you a bunch of uh different stone raid blood moon blood sun like sort of effects uh blood moon is just the the most iconic of them for our list but yeah red gives you those sort of there's a time period online where from the ashes was like 15 tickets (laughs) So generally speaking here, the list of red cards here is probably shorter than the lists for all of the other colors, and I don't want to slight red here. It just so happens that a lot of the things that are red are also some other color if they're really good, and so we're going to come back to a lot of those cards later. They're going to be things like Culligan's Command. Where right, yeah, uh, we have all... Yeah, when when we bring up the uh, 
the wedges and shards, uh, and we get the non-blue color gold cards. Uh, we'll bring those up. But for for how short that red list is, nothing that I just said hits like Pyroblast in a control mirror. Like, <laughs> uh, I, I think of all of the, you know, like 20, 30 cards we just named across the other colors. There are times where Pyroblast is just the answer. And uh, it, that, that card's really good. I'll say this. I have seven physical Magic the Gathering decks at the moment. I do not own enough Pyroblast and I own 12. Like, it's just a card that I play in so many decks. That's beautiful. Yeah, I, I think that I also, because I also play Popper and Pyroblast is just a ubiquitous sideboard card in that format. I think I own something like 16 Pyroblasts and then like another eight Red Elemental Blasts. And I don't have enough. <laughs> if I were to construct all the decks I wanted at the same time, like I own so many of that card. And I own them from an era. There was an era in college when Legacy was much cheaper now. The kids might not re- might not know this happened, but there was a time where like uh, Tropical Island was like, you know, 20 bucks slightly played. <laughs> and like uh, with, with a little bit of disposable income or some tournament winnings, you could build like another Legacy deck. There was a period where I think I had 10 Legacy decks fully constructed, like no proxies, all 75 sleeved, ready to go. And that was so I could, you know, play with other people, introduce them to the format. People could borrow decks to go to tournaments. And that's why I have so many freaking Pyroblasts now, because every deck had them. All right, so let's start talking about our color combos. And let's maybe start with Bug. Bug offers a lot of really good multicolored cards um really good removal in particular with abrupt decay and assassin's trophy (laughs) yeah brian just can't even wait love abrupt decay he makes that noise every time someone says boom (laughs) told you it's weird assassin's trophy in particular is a really cool tool from a blue deck because a lot of times these blue base control decks aren't wasteland decks, and so they don't have the ability to go and answer something like, I don't know, a Dark Daps or a Glacial Chasm or like very annoying opposing Caracas. Field of the Dead. Yeah, Field of the Dead's a real good one from recent times. <laughs> yep, speaking of blue decks. Jace the Mind Sculptor. For years, blue decks would look to win the mirror by just going up on the mana curve that died with Assassin's Trophy. Yeah, there there was a time where you got to get like real cute in Legacy by playing like five drops that went over the top of stuff. Like I like not as a meme, like I've played Karanos in Legacy plenty of times just as something that was real sticky. I I loved it. Yeah, Karanos was hot for a while. The uh, Eternal Extravaganza that I chopped the finals up with Elves Ren's Run Packmaster was my tech for that weekend because Bug was one of the was like the default blue deck at the time, and they only played Abrupt Decay, and they could not answer a four drop, and like I I just ranched so many Bug players by just Zenith for Ren's Run Packmaster GG. I'm sure the two of you will remember this, but there was like a two SEGs the weekend after uh, Containment Priest came out in that Commander deck. Uh, a friend of mine. In their black, or I'm sorry, black blue reanimator deck, cyborged a uh, Karanos because you could reanimate or exhume it through containment priest and then pick off the containment priest and then kill them. That rules. I remember that. Yeah. All right. I I think the other big draw to bug is specifically Leovold. I suppose so. If you're into that kind of thing. So, like traditionally, you're playing Leovold because like 
it draws cards, it makes the opposing cantrip so, so much worse. But I think the, like, hidden up, well, not so hidden, everyone knows it, because, like, as soon as it happens to you, your gut just goes, oh, shit. I think the coolest thing about Leovold right now is how good it is against Carpet of Flowers. No, that is not a cool thing, Phil. <laughs> it's really sweet. No. All right, Brian, will you explain what's going on here for anyone who, like, is not familiar with this interaction? All right, so Carpet of Flowers, during each of your main phases, targets an opponent, and you may then choose to make mana equal to the number of islands they control. So that gives you two triggers a turn to draw a card off Leobold. Unless you use it in the first main phase. Right, if you use it in the first main, then they, it, then it won't trigger, because it's if you haven't used it yet. Uh, but that does force... It guarantees, like, it does trigger, period. Like, you can't choose not to trigger. So they get the card guaranteed in the first main. Then you have to float the mana whether you want it or not. Like, if your plan is to, like, you know, attack with your Uro, draw a card, see if you have something to spend that mana on, too late. But I guess if you're bearing down with Uro, <laughs> then... But I guess you wouldn't draw the card anyway because Leovolt's in play. So get wrecked, nerd. As someone who plays four Carpet of Flowers, please do not play this fucking card. <laughs> yeah um but i also feel like bug is a color combination that tends to be pretty easy to fight against because i feel like a lot of the bug decks end up relying pretty pretty heavily on their graveyards they're also slow as fuck are they slower than grixis though they're really slow no they're not slower than grixis Grixis is easily the slowest color combination we're going to talk about, but uh, Bug Bug gets to close if they get to keep their graveyard. Like, if they can Uro, if they can Dredge Loam, if they can get their Field of the Dead online, depending on their build, uh, Bug is going to play out of the graveyard. Maybe uh, maybe they have, like, a more mid-range list that's just crunching with Goyfs. Rest in Peace is going to hit that, too. If Gurmag Angler's their plan, Rest in Peace hits that, too. Like, messing with Bug's graveyard is going to hurt them. It's worth noting that they get both of the flying uh, birds, both the snowbird and the metal bird, they get their choice, which is kind of interesting because a lot of the decks choose which one they get to play and they get to select whatever one suits their deck the best. Yeah, that is interesting. Some of the bug control decks end up sort of steering towards combo control. And I think that's another strength of this color combination. We end up seeing a lot of like the Allurin and Food Chain type decks being in this color combination. Dragon. World Gorger Dragon is frequently in a bug shell when you see it. Obviously, that's not like a, a big deck. Don't tell the Leaving a Legacy Discord. Uh, but but yeah, uh, I, I've definitely gotten got a number of times where my opponents just like, you know, bug cards, abrupt decay, ponder, Leovold, and then like, surprise, Aloran. Like, oh crap. My bad. So, one thing I don't like about bug, like, very specifically right now, is the fact that their removal does not tell Uro to permanently GTFO. The, the fact that you kill things and they end up in the graveyard is usually fine, but Uro is such a huge deal in the format right now that if you don't have a great answer to it, it's like it's going to come back and it's going to be a, a problem. So there is a new card from Strixhaven uh, that will fit into the black 
section here that I didn't talk about. Uh, I don't know the name of the card, I'm sorry, but it's a four mana instant, and it's it's black and three, and it's exile target creature or planeswalker, and you can reduce its cost by two if you let your opponent draw a card. So uh, it, it's just Doomblade for exile target creature or planeswalker, but your opponent gets to draw a card if you cast it for that mode. So like, it, when it comes down to like I'm dying to this Uro, I'm dying to this Jace. Those both draw cards anyway. So like, there might be some room for a card like that in in Black's legacy space. Um, I'm I'm skeptical. I mean, sure, it's it's not a banger. It's not abrupt decay, but in the, we're talking about control decks too. Where having four mana is not a big deal either. I remember Pokemoki talking about this card when it was spoiled, and I believe his words were, I would rather die than let my opponent draw a card. Yeah. And that is generally how I feel about it, too. But I, I'm just saying, if you are married to Bug, like, if you own Underground Seas and Bayous and you can't afford Tundras, like, and, and you just can't pivot, I think this is a reasonable card to consider. It's I worth testing. Exactly, and I think it doesn't hurt to try new ideas. The community stifles a lot of possible innovation uh, with just like bad Twitter hot takes. I'm not trying to call out Pokemoki at all here, but that sort of stuff gets you caught, which gets you followers, and sometimes those cards are just fine. Like, don't let people's takes on Twitter stop you from, you know, trying and testing out a card. So, Brian, I have a question for you. Is there a realistic world where you would play this new removal spell over Cling to Dust? Uh... I mean, if Planeswalkers, like, the Planeswalker half of that card's pretty important. Like, uh, like I said, Jace the Mind Sculptor. Uh, we, we were talking about how Abrupt Decay doesn't answer Jace, Bug doesn't get Pyroblast. Jace is a problem. If they just save their Force of Will for your Assassin's Trophy, you're going to lose to Jace. Uh, so, like, this this card could play. Uh, I expect Uro to be everywhere. Um Bug does have the benefit of having its own Uros. Like, it can just, like, abrupt decay the enemy Uro, let them get the, the card draw trigger, then bring back its own Uro to catch up and just try to, like, hammer it out. That That's a thing you can do. Um, but I, I think that Cling to Dust and this, this card are just different cards. How do we feel about the bug decks that are also playing Caracas for a similar reason? I like stable, consistent mana paces so much um i feel like some of the bug decks have gotten incredibly greedy with their mana um including some of them splitting their basic lands between snow and regular so that they can try to squeeze a field of the dead in there too to like have additional wiggle room versus control decks in the end game and like i, I get that caracas is like a very targeted card but i don't know I, I like my lands to, like, not have to force me to mulligan. Yeah, there there's some different builds of bug. There's, like, the, the ones you'd expect, like, just the fair and square, like, brainstorm, ponder, abrupt decay, arrow kind of stuff. And then there are ones that are, like, trying to intuition for life from the loam, raven's crime, arrow, and just take over that way. And they, they're both doing a powerful thing. One has chosen power over consistency. And uh, if we're in this, like, control mirror space that we're talking about i'd rather be powerful than consistent because control games are going to go long but if we get paired against burn i'm going to be really sad i have caracas in my deck and raven's crime rather than just smooth removal and efficient creatures so it it's all just deck building considerations at that point but uh, there there is some cool innovation going on there 
I lost a bug Yorion recently. Like it was that it was this deck. It was just like the the Life from the Loam Intuition Uro deck. They just added twenty cards in Yorion, and mad respect for that. I love Yorion. Well, you're not going to dredge yourself to death, Brian. Twenty extra cards, obviously. <laughs> yeah, you're safe. Yep. All right, we've talked about bug for a lot of time here. Um, let's get into Bant. Um, so. The band color combination doesn't really offer any unique gold cards because the uh, the uh, the non blue colors are Selesnia, and that those colors suck. So like Rude. the type of well the type of cards that are in Selesnia are the cards people board in to beat control decks. Like we're talking about like Gaddock Teague and uh, Knight of the Reliquary. Or that's not, doesn't come out of the sideboard obviously, but like that's the sort of like hammer monster that can win a game by itself. Uh, Kasali Pride Mage. Like, I was just gonna say that. Yeah, like you're you're not gonna play these cards in your your Bant Miracles deck. Uh, so the the Bant Wedge doesn't offer any specific cards itself. It just offers uh, a different pairing. Like you drop the the black from the Bug deck, and now you have Terminus and Swords to Plowshares, so you can permanently answer that Uro by either exiling it or tucking it with the the Terminus. Rip rocks um, War Monk. <laughs> I I actually did register that card in a Legacy tournament once. I think it was in upstate New York. You were probably there. Uh, it was in a mall. Did you ever play in a mall? Like like in the hallway in a mall? Yep. For a Black yeah, Lotus? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. I, I, I played Rocks War Monk in that tournament. All right. Cool. Glad we established that. So uh, the Bant deck also doesn't get Pyroblast. It doesn't get Discard. So you're really committing to controlling the board and the stack. Uh or at least answering the board. I, I think that Bant is really good at answering the board. Uh, it's not... It, it has, like, some consideration for the stack. It plays the Force of Wills and stuff, but it's not going after your hand. It can't mess with you. It's trying to beat you on board. Um, and the way that it's going to beat control decks is by going even bigger. Like, Bug is trying to outvalue control decks with the Uro recurring. Bant's trying to outvalue even Bug by going even bigger. Like uh, that that's where Bant wants to go. They want to play the longest games. Uh except for maybe Grixis on this list, but Bant is uh second in on the uh long game hierarchy here. I agree with that statement right now, but I don't know that that has always historically been true because a lot of times we've seen people play these Bant control decks that are three drop centric and then Noble Hierarch became a part of their plan. Yep. So, like, you can give up a, a card to gain that mana acceleration to gain some tempo and make yourself a little bit faster. But that often yeah. was because they wanted to finish the game earlier. I often consider those decks to be mid-range as well. So, like, if your deck, for example, if your deck was Bug and you're playing Noble Hierarch, that's bug label to me. That's more of a mid-range check than a true control deck. I imagine that Brian, and Brian can correct me if I'm wrong, but Brian's talking more of true control decks, not the mid-range style. I mean, that's where, like, we, we wrote, I wrote the, the section of the show notes from that brain space, but um, uh, towards the end, we're going to talk about, like, knowing your role, and the, the thing about mid-range decks is that they are sometimes aggro and sometimes control, depending on what the opponent's doing, and so, like, uh, when you're playing against uh, Grixis Control, your Stoneforge Mystic feels like an aggro card. When you're playing against Burn, your Stoneforge Mystic feels like a control card, so it, it's just a matter of perspective on that one but yes these these like those games that or those decks that would try to jump out like a quick true name nemesis or 
uh, a Stoneforge Mystic with backup, like protect your Stoneforge Mystic with Spell Pierce on turn two. Like those Hierarch decks were pretty cool. Uh, That's where I started with the current format after the bans, trying to Noble Hierarch out Hall Breacher really quickly. And the Hall Breachers started to fade from the deck and then the Noble Hierarchs went with it. And and now we're just on like normal Bant builds with uh, Teferi and, and Uro and stuff. So it turned out to be not so good, but and Noble Hierarch is a terrible combo with Terminus. That's not a oh, card yeah. you want to ramp into. I think it's delightful. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so that that's what Bant looks like. Well, if you think about it, the hardest part of casting Supreme Verdict is its mana cost. Noble Hierarch helps with that. You know what else helps with casting Supreme Verdict? Putting three basic planes in your deck. Well, now we're just getting crazy. Three? Uh, I don't oh, even man. know if I own three planes. Uh, I just I just got heated up. I'm going to have to crack a window. <laughs> <laughs> that just gets me going. All, All right. right. So Grix says, Kalgan's Command, Angrath's Rampage. Those cards tend to be good against a lot of the decks that I play. Yep. Those are, those are your uh, Rakdos uh, cards that go into the blue deck. Yeah, K-Command. Basically, the, the Grixis archetype exists because K-Command exists, or at least it did in 2018. I don't know if that's true anymore. Um, I, I released a Grixis control video recently, and one of the comments was that like K-Command doesn't really hang in Legacy anymore. And if that's true, I think that's the death knell for Grixis. <laughs> like, I, I don't think that there's a better card you can play. It's just if that card is good enough anymore. Brian, I know you're already a little bit heated, so I hope this doesn't, uh, you know, make you take your shirt off. But I'm going to pass out. Pris- uh, I believe it's called Prismari Command, the blue-red command. That card is better than Kalgan's Command, in my opinion. And it's super Ooh. good against Doomsday because you can deck your Doomsday opponent with it. It has very similar modes. You can loot with it. Wait, it has wait, that wait. Hold value. up. What? what? What is the name of this card? I need to look this up. Yeah, I- I'm getting it up right now. Uh it's the Prismari, Prismatic, Prismari uh, yeah, command. Prismari. I don't know uh, words. So, all right, uh, one blue red. Instant. Choose two. Deal two damage to any target. Target player draws two, discards two. Target player creates a treasure token. Destroy target artifact. Uh, I think calling this just like better than Kolagon's command is not true. It, it's just a very different thing, but. It does. It has two of the exact same modes, like two to any target and destroy target artifact are the same. Uh, the treasure token is nothing. That that's a blank line of text. Uh, and but the target player draws two, discards two. I think that's going to be. I think that's a lot worse than Ray's dead. So hear me out. The worst part of Kalgan's command has always been the fact that it gets stuck in your hand and it's clunky. This card pitches, and I know it's like the four for every blue card, but the fact that it actually pitches to your six or seven forces, I think is really big game in a lot of these grindy blue decks. And I know that's like a silly thing to say in Legacy, but I think that's what makes it better than Kalgan's Command. I don't know. The 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 K-Command loops are always the iconic thing to me that like really stands out for putting that card over the top. Because Grixis Control is is so just painfully slow at physically ending games and if you're going to be that slow you really just need to have the inevitability that the k command loops offer but those decks aren't viable anyway like that's part of that's a different conversation but Uh, like this card could go into rug delver if they wanted it as a cyborg option like it's super flexible all right so that that's starting to change the conversation a bit like uh talking about 
like black cards in Legacy. Like the the Raise Dead, which is like one of the black abilities on Kolagon's command. Like, uh, Phil, cover your ears. Destroy your Thalia. Rebuy Snapcaster Mage. Snapcaster Kolagon's command. Destroy Sanctum Prelate and Batter Skull. That's a turn cycle you can have. Like, oh baby, <laughs> get out of the way. Uh, so like that sort of thing. Um, the Prismari command doesn't do that, but Prismari command does do other things. And like, I, I'm not gonna say the card is not good uh, without having tried it myself. I, I I don't think that it's not good. I, I think that it is different enough to Golagon's command that we can't say one's better than the other. But I, I could see these Grixis decks splitting them or just adding more commands to the deck. I don't know. But the problem with Grixis right now is that uh, while Discard and Pyroblast will shred other blue decks, their removal doesn't exile. They are so bad against Uro. It, it is just bad news. Uh, they they get to main deck Cling to Dust, and it's not enough. Oh, it's, it's not even close to enough. Not even close to close. Like, the, the problem... One of the problems there is that the Cling to Dust, the Exile bonus on Uro is gain three life, which is nothing in that matchup. Like, you don't need three life. You could pay three life, and at any point it wouldn't matter. Like, the uh, if Cling to Dust was always just Exile target card draw a card, maybe we're in business. But the fact that for Uro to get into the graveyard for you to Cling it, your opponent's already drawn a card and possibly ramped their mana. And the Kling only answers the first Uro, and Uro decks usually play three, sometimes four, depending on how invested they are. And like at some point, you're going to run out of gas, or they're just going to have seven mana to just Uro, dump it, bring it back immediately. So uh, Kling to Dust doesn't get the job done, and uh, I-, I think that as long as Uro's in the format, this... Uh, this legacy pillar of Grixis control from like the 2016 to 2018 era is just not viable. It's interesting because there's so many cards in black that exile a creature or planeswalker, but they're all designed for newer formats and therefore the mana costs on them are not very uh, legacy friendly. And right. that's what makes it interesting to me because like there are tons of cards that Grixis could play to answer Earl. They just don't because four mana is a lot for a removal spell even at three mana like there might be some that exists at three i can't think of any off the top of my head but even at three mana those probably aren't playable yeah and like are you gonna like fire off your vraska's contempt on the first half of an uro or are you gonna make them invest their time and resources to bring it back into play then get it with the vraska's contempt or by that point they've already divinationed you off the uro itself just for you to spend four mana to exile it like nah it, it doesn't line up it's not a good spot so uh as a, a primarily blue white wizard myself i am terrified of Grixis. like the the discard spells uh i i think my number one most hated card when i'm playing blue white is him to Turok, and they've got it my second most hated card is pyroblast and they got that too and they have both in numbers and they have snapcaster mage to do them all again like this deck is a nightmare if you don't have Uro as a control deck. I really but like if the, you do, it's a joke. The dance that happened once Miracles realized that it should be playing AK because the matchup became really interesting between Grixis and Miracles once I added AK. Like, oh yeah, that that was a good time. Yeah, the old him to Tarak just to fuel up your AKs. <laughs> yeah, baby. 
And then oh, yeah. the next one's Aspa. How do we feel about Aspa control? So Esper gets to exile things. Uh, so cards that are specifically in the, the Orzhov color pair is uh, Vindicate, Zealous Persecution, Esper Charm, which is a little weird, but I've seen it. Uh, and there are two new cards in Strixhaven, Vanishing Verse and Fracture. They're both black-white instants, so they're both two-mana instants. Vanishing Verse is exile a monocolored permanent, and Fracture is exile an artifact creature or planeswalker. God, that card is good. Those are two pretty solid removal spells in in or- Orzhov colors, which Esper gets access to. I will admit, this is the color combination that I am most terrified of as a combo player. Oh yeah, they get the white sideboard cards and the black discard cards and the blue counter spells. Yeah, dead guy this ale it. intensifies. It is terrifying. <laughs> like, and whenever I get paired against an Esper deck as TES, I just assume that I've lost. Yeah, I and mean, that that is generally uh, how I feel in those matchups too. Um, they they do get all the discard from black. They get all the powerful permanents from white. Uh, the problem with Esper is they don't have a super robust end game plan. Like, you need to stick a Jace and get it done. You need to use Monastery Mentor to uh, get through that breach that you created with your discard spells. Like, you gotta end the game, because Uro's gonna overpower you later, uh, if, if it goes that long. Like, you can plow the first one, but they again, they've got... They gain 9 life and drew a card off of that, or 2 cards and 12 life if you wait for the second time around. And, uh, like, they'll eventually power through that. Uh, Grixis, they're going to bury you with their Plague Engineer on Monk. They're going to get the Kolagon's commands looping. Like, you got to punch through that breach as soon as you open it. So that's where Esper is a little weaker than the other colors. But the the spread of interaction it gets are just phenomenal. Um, long ago, uh, like 2012 Legacy, when it was that Rugdelver, Esper Stone, Blade Maverick metagame uh, that a lot of uh, Legacy boomers like to fantasize about, uh, I, I remember just like, Testing Legacy, like playing some casual Legacy uh, with some friends at, 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 at like the side table at a pre-release. And Harry Corvisi drew this hand that was like Flooded Strand, Polluted Delta, Brainstorm, Swords to Plowshares, Inquisition of Kozilek, uh, Stoneforge Mystic, Force of Will. And he was like, how can I ever lose? And it was just like a little bit from column A, B, and C, and a threat to tie it all together. And like that really is just the beautiful Esper dream. The hand is a mulligan in 2021. Uh, yeah, that hand's not great. Uh, <laughs> none of those cards are that good anymore. Uh, that's not true. They're each like good on their own, but Stoneforge Mystic just isn't a, a carry the game win con anymore. Agreed. I think Esper is best when there are a lot of small creature decks in the metagame. You know, there was this time when flashing back a Lingering Souls and then casting a Zealous Persecution was just like really doing someone dirty. And I feel like we're just not there anymore. Carried Tom yeah, Martell to a GP win, right? Yeah, Tom Martell uh, won a Grand Prix with a Esper control deck that featured intuition for three lingering souls. And Cabal Therapy, right? Yeah, yeah. That That's what passed for Legacy in 2012. But, uh, I mean, that's cool stuff, though. Uh, but, again, uh, not a great endgame. So what about that uh, blue-white archetype? What's good about that? Oh, you rang. Uh, so, uh, blue white is encapsulate all the cards it has access to are encapsulated in Esper, 
But the difference is that you get this untouchable mana base, which I, I harp about a lot. We've we've already made multiple basic land jokes in this very podcast. Uh, but playing something like nine to 11 basic lands in your legacy deck, like you, you just got to ignore Wasteland. You ignore Days. Uh, you eventually ignore Flusterstorm and Spell Pierce. You just got to ignore so much stuff. And that's worth a lot. Uh, although the other... Any, all of these blue decks could play this card, only this one wants to, and that's back to basics. Like That's a card you could just put in your main deck, you could put another one in your sideboard, and you're going to win a lot of games just by having that. That's the banger. That's the free win button uh, that, that blue-white gets access to. And we've already talked about uh, what white cards do, but the, the exile on the creatures, Swords to Plowshare, is huge, and your sideboard is just the best, the best, the meat and potatoes is the the white cards out of the board i have a question for you so we've listed most of these decks by their shard names how come this is blue white and not azorius well it can be uh i i like in my head i i just say uh blue white and when i'm typing at shorthand i always say just uw but like the naming conventions are azorius and most consumers of magic content these days have only ever known blue white as azorius because ravnica came out in what like uh 2004 like that was 17 years ago at this point like that was a long time ago so uh the the i i tend to split the difference when i'm like titling my youtube videos i just say like azorius slash blue white control (laughs) like i try to say both i don't know uh but I know there are also some people who are just super passionate about like, it's not Azorius, it's blue-white. If you say Teemer, I'm punching in the head. It's Rug. It's like, shut up. <laughs> like, it, you can feel that way. And like, I, I think that Rug and Bug roll off the tongue better than Teemer and Sultai do. And I, I like them for that reason. But like, uh, like Bant, like nobody gets mad about Bant because it's so, it's so clean. Pushes up glasses and certain nasally voice. It's Canadian Threshold. Yes, uh, it hasn't been Canadian Threshold for a long time, and uh, it, it it hasn't really been Rugged Elver for a while either, but it's so much easier. Like, I'll take the Path of Least Resistance most of the time. If someone's like, it's not Azorius, it's Blue-White, I'm just like, okay, sure. <laughs> you win. I don't care. Uh, but, all right, back to... <laughs> what are the uh, not-so-great benefits of running straight Blue-White, Brian? Well discard spells and pyroblast like i mentioned in the grixis section uh there's no veil of summer to protect you from <gasps> discard the the one-to-one one the one-for-one counter spells are few and far between like uh my technology back in uh, like three years ago in blue white miracles was main deck Flusterstorm because you just had to beat uh him to tarak and you couldn't afford to lose game one to him to tarak because it was everywhere in grixis control so like you, you board in some number of Flusterstorms. You might have some Dovin's Vetoes. Uh, I've been trying a Test of Talents from Strixhaven. That's the like negate that's also Surgical Extraction. So it, you have to bring those in, but they're not really main deckable. And your main deck counterspells, like Force of Willing, a Hymn to Turok, always feels horrific. And I usually just don't do it. I just let it resolve. I had this as a shower thought this morning after playing Historic Storm all night. That is a format that does not have Flusterstorm. I was also thinking, how would they even make that work on Arena with Storm copying, countering other Storm copies? I don't think Arena could actually handle it. But there used to be a time period in Legacy 
where I was actually decent at magic because Flusterstorm didn't exist, which is just a wild time to think about. And what Brian's saying makes a lot of sense. Like, it's it's really diverse. It can do a lot of things. Like, it's just versatile. And Control Decks back in 2010, they would stare at counter-target spell in their hand and just be weak to an Empty the Warrens or multiple Tendrils of Agony. And that all really changed. And I think Flusterstorm came out in 2012. I might be wrong about that uh, one. It was in like the first round of commander decks whenever that happened. Maybe 2013. Some, yeah, somewhere in there. A little later than 2012. I don't know. Uh, my my favorite uh, Flusterstorm line that has resurfaced lately is uh, when your opponent is obviously holding up Stifle. You wait for them to cast Brainstorm, then you fetch, then they Stifle your fetch, then you fluster both their spells. Nice. Th- yeah, that that's a pretty common like turn two or turn three line that you get to do when you have main deck fluster storm all right my solution of opening image on google and hitting plus a bunch did not work pixelation <laughs> scryfall tells you what your cards came out what i'm pretty sure that's true we are not sponsored by scryfall please do not go there until they pay us <laughs> uh, i love scryfall and you should go there and use it all the time because i do and like honestly they're uh 2011 flusterstorm came out so actually before i even thought so yeah i found that out that quickly on scryfall that was real time that website is is phenomenal all right so let's talk about uh jeskai a little bit uh jeskai is mostly just blue white with pyroblast in the sideboard like a lot of times you just have a blue white main deck and then like one volcanic island maybe a basic mountain in the sideboard and three pyroblasts and that's your jeskai deck well the big thing in my opinion, to be Jeskai, is wear tear. Brian, you would not believe my number one wish in magic, probably, is that wear tear would be half sorcery so I could burning wish for it. That card is very good. Uh, Rip Apart is a sorcery. Yeah, but that card stinks. So uh, Rip Apart, also brand new from Strixhaven. It's uh, red-white. Deal three damage to a creature or planeswalker or destroy target artifact or enchantment. I don't think it actually stinks. It's just like, it's not good enough. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't kill two things, which is what you want out of wear tear. But yeah, wear tear rip apart are the two uh, Boros cards that really matter in Legacy that you get when it when you stretch to Jeskai from from base blue white. When you were talking about your modern story earlier with Celestial Colonnade, if I remember correctly, that deck was Jeskai because on top of having Electrolyze, it also ran four Lightning Helix and four Bolt. So a lot of the time, you only needed to get one or two Colonnade hits in, and then you would just burn your opponent out yeah there were a few different builds one of them was just a glorified burn deck it even had geist of saint trapped in it as like a four mana burn spell <laughs> like they just trade with the geist and take four from the angel and that's a good deal uh that was not the build i had <laughs> uh but but yeah lightning helix technically also in the jeskai wedge but not uh, that card is, you don't want that that's not good uh that's not where you want to be in a control deck um if you're porting burn from modern quick side note don't try to add white. It is not worth it. Yeah, you don't get Luris in Legacy. You do get it in Modern, and that's pretty good. And I, the final uh, wedge we're going to talk about is Rug. And Rug Control uh, is is kind of sticky because Delver occupies the Rug wedge so well, but delver has skewed controlling in the recent years uh like delver like we've seen we've talked about this on this cast and everywhere you talk about legacy uh at length that 
Rug Delver is always like one reasonable card advantage engine away from being just an S tier control deck instead of just like a tier one meta player. And so Oko and Dread Horde Arcanist both left, uh, pushing Rug back down a little bit. Now they've just fully adopted Uro. I haven't seen a Rug list without Uro um, in, in like in the entire format. So, uh, and then they sideboard things like Clothis. I've seen Narset in Rug Delver sideboards. Like that is a person who is planning to play a control game if they have to. So it, Rug is sort of a, a modal like tempo slash control whatever it needs to be wedge uh but uh, it definitely fits in the control spectrum rip fire spout <laughs> yeah i i used to play fire spout in in my canadian threshold deck for sure that, that card was good for a while it was in the rocks war monk uh control deck that you played in an upstate new york mall uh yes it was rocks war monk survives that bad boy and you can just pay the red half and your Delver survives. Oh, yeah. Those were legacy playable cards in 2008. I mean, that was like, it, and the funny part of that story is that Rough Tumble was printed before Fire Spout. <laughs> we had that card the whole time and we just chose to play Fire Spout. All right. So let's sort of cap up this section. If we want to be talking about like blue control decks, you know, what conceptually really unites everything that we've just talked about pounder brain trip cartel yep and force of will okay i had something else kind panda of panda phil panda uh sure i was thinking spells these these decks that we're talking about here they are primarily spell focused whether it's the discard the counter spells the the cantrips most of these blue control decks as we're thinking of them are focusing on controlling the game via the stack and the things that we're going to talk about next are really focused on controlling the battlefield through permanence instead uh, i'll i'll amend that slightly that they have the option to fight on the stack and then they each have ways of affecting the board so what they need to counter is different, but they they all make you check, like, can I answer this? Then it gets to resolve. There's one of these that I'm deeply offended by. Well, uh, Phil, go ahead. Get into these other sort of control decks. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the non-blue options. Um, and we're going to start with Death and Taxes, which is like the, the quintessential creature-based control deck. And... This plays out very, very differently from how these spell-based control decks are. They're looking to discard, counterspell, or point a kill spell at something once it's in play. And this is something that, like, Bryant talks about all the time. Hey, Bryant, when do you, uh, well, I guess maybe not so much now, but when did you used to start caring about D&T's interaction? Turn two. Turn two. Like, for the longest time, that was the, the case of D&T where it's just like, until Thalia or Phyrexian Revoker comes online on turn two, or something like Sanctum Prelate comes online on turn three, you're just not interacting with your opponents early, at least in game one. I said it when Eldrin came out. Giving DNT a bridge to turn two was complete bullshit. So, Death and Taxes is this deck that has a lot of strengths, but simultaneously a ton of weaknesses. Uh, it's it's a deck that's very polarized 
Whereas many of these blue decks are kind of like safe choices. You're going to have game against everything. Death and Taxes is a, a deck where your matchups are a little bit more swingy in one direction or another. You have these great strengths in that you have a whole bunch of basic lands that make you really resilient against the, the Delver decks. But ultimately, you're trying to keep your opponent off balance via various like soft lock pieces. And you're not good against everything. So, for example, if Death and Taxes isn't tuned to beat you, you might be able to slip through all their various lock pieces. Phil, I'm going to disagree with you here. Um, to me, D&T is not a control deck. It's not an aggro deck. Um, I think D&T, if I had to pick an, uh, a sub-archetype, would probably be mid-range. That said, D&T is one of the most flexible mid-range decks that exists because it is so many things in so many different matchups. But it's like calling goblins a control deck. Is it really? It has wasteland import and some creature removal. But I think at the core of it, goblins is also a mid-range deck. And um, I don't know if I agree with most of the decks in this upcoming section, and that's not the overall point. But out of them, I think D&T is the most like a control deck. Well, you're in luck because the final section tonight is going to be me talking about... I'm going to basically create a new what is tempo by uh going really uh like heady and experimental on what control actually means but i think dnt is firmly a control deck and i think goblins uh to your example is uh the most fluid deck in possibly the history of legacy it, of it could be aggro combo or control and it could happen all three could happen in the same game so uh, i i think that i also think that goblins is like an aggro combo deck game one that boards into a control deck uh like Nothing in the goblin sideboard speeds the deck up. It all slows it down, which I think is really interesting. But uh, DNT, I think, firmly is a control deck. Yeah. So, like, when when you think of control decks at at the macro level, you you think about these decks that gain great advantage as the turn counter ticks up, and you think about decks that are trying to like stop or manipulate what your opponent is doing. And Death and Taxes is definitely doing that. It's so rare that Death and Taxes plays like a straight aggro game. Like you, you're not just turning your creatures sideways most of the time, and like that is is the plan, right? You're always trying to disrupt with wasteland and and port or set up these weird flicker with situations that work to your advantage. I think it like, really depends on the builds too, right? Felt like if you're playing Spirit of the Labyrinth or Sarah Angel, that can change a little bit more, correct? Yeah. So historically, there have been some times where I have been playing like 4X Miran Crusader plus an additional sword in the sideboard. And like those D&T builds played closer to an aggro deck or like almost a combo deck in some times where it was like, oh, Crusader plus Sword of War and Peace. I one shot you. Yeah, that sounds like Mono White Maverick to me. Uh, so a matchup that I believe is pretty difficult for D&T, Phil, would be Doomsday. Do you try to take the control role in that matchup, or are you trying to be an aggro deck? Um, so yes. <laughs> the honest answer is I am going to try to find a desperation path to victory. I, I do not expect to win that matchup just because of how the two decks align. And so a lot of times my plan is something like, I'm going to play the Spirit of the Labyrinth on turn two and 
hope that it wins. Or the line is like, I have a surgical in hand. I'm going to hope that they go for Doomsday. I I cause them to shuffle and then like somehow I win the game. Um, I think until Death and Taxes, like... I don't, I don't want to say like grows up and adjusts, but I think until Death and Taxes like finally says like, okay, the Doomsday matchup is bad. We need to be playing, you know, Hushbringer or equivalent for it to like stop that Thassa's Oracle. Um that matchup's not going to change because adjusting the numbers of like your spirit of the labyrinths or deafening silences or mind break traps, like is not helping there. I think that like doesn't matter anyway. Um, uh, Everyday Eternal, uh, another great legacy podcast. If you don't listen to them, talked about this in their most recent episode too, where like some matchups you're just going to lose. Like how many doomsday pilots are going to, are you going to play against in, a nine round star city open or like a 15 round grand prix like one or zero probably don't waste a card slot on hush bringer <laughs> it, it's okay to have a punt matchup it's better to like put your money where it matters and uh you'll do better if you just you know have a, a deck that can beat something rather than like might beat anything i think that like with the overlap between like that and other decks like oops it's a real consideration, though. Yeah, if if there's a, a saturation of things that overlap where a Hushbringer is good enough, then sure. Uh, but, like, Hushbringer also is just like, here's Uro. <laughs> Enjoy. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, like, you, you, you play six, that in the, in the sideboard card. Like, don't, don't main deck that. Like, yeah. it's very so, bad like, with your cards. Yeah, I... I, I I, this is a decision that I make every time, like going back to that, like blue, white, maybe red uh, core that I like to play. Um, do I play like Mind Break Trap and two Null Rods and two Deafening Silence to beat Storm? Or do I just re- understand that there are like 10 competent Storm players in the entire world and I'm probably not going to get paired against two of them in the same Grand Prix? So why do you do it anyway? Uh, if it's free, I'm going to do it. And also the Magic Online metagame is very different than a Grand Prix. That's very true. Yeah. So, like, Death and Taxes is kind of this, like, safe, slow, somewhat consistent control deck. And you can play other decks that are like this, but they push things to the extremes a little bit more. And I think Esper Vial is one of the best examples of that. Yeah, this is the uh, the trading stability for raw power. This is that uh, that bug deck versus the low the intuition for loam Ravens crime Uro deck. Like the, what what kind of bug deck are you building? What kind of Thalia deck are you building? And uh, there's a lot to like about raw power, but also there's a lot to like about not dying instantly to Blood Moon. Yeah, the Esper Vile deck, most notably, gets to run six free pitch counters, but also a different suite of creature disruptive permanents. Uh, they get to run Meddling Mage. Like, that's pretty huge. Phil mentioned DNT having a tough time with Doomsday. You can't cast that Doomsday. You're not allowed to. So that's something that Esper Vile does have going on for it, on top of the fact that you do have the six pitch counter spells to help uh, yeah. shore up that matchup a little bit. Meddling Mage is awesome. I've been very impressed with that card um, when I've been playing it out of the sideboards of things recently. Like, yeah, I love Meddling Mage. You, you, you give up. I don't know ten plus basic lands in order to have this like Meddling Mage and counter spells to get you through the initial turns, 
and then you end up with what is probably a better late game than what Death and Taxes has with these Soul Herder chains of just being able to blink your Recruiter of the Guard or the Baleful Strix or the Plague Engineer every turn to just get exactly what you need for any given situation. Yeah, you also then have the opposite end of the spectrum, Phil, where you have decks like, uh, I'm going to use air quotes here, hate bears, but most notably humans, like the really low to the ground disruptive decks where you have like uh, Kite Sail Freebooter, um, more Sanctum Prelates, like the really aggressive, just human disruptive package where you're not looking to play the super long game. You're looking to disrupt a little bit while killing. Yep. Yeah, that was the the best deck in modern for a while, and uh, the the mana base like just gets better in legacy. Uh, the the humans just get better in legacy, and yeah, that that is a good point. Like if you have Mantis Rider in your deck, you're not playing for turn fifteen. <laughs> you're trying to get it done. They also have that. Uh, I don't remember the full name, but the general, the Kudro. Uh, yeah, Kudrow. like that's a big upgrade. Lisa Kudrow. It, it both disrupts the opponent on an axis that humans was really weak while making the threats faster. The deck also recently got, uh, what is it, Rick Stalwart Leader, uh, which is a hell of a drug. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not the most consistent card, but like, my God, when that thing comes down and it's turned on, the, the swing in the board states is absurd. Shout out when to the my leaving opponents took their vial to four. I just want to jump off a bridge. Like something horrific's coming out of there, and it's probably Rick. I've never actually lost to Rick, but I have seen screenshots of Rick uh, taking down opponents. I have not opened up my Rick yet. I'm afraid that if I ever open up my uh, secret layer, they're all just going to be Pringles. So if I sell it while it's still closed, no one can accuse me of knowing. Yeah, I, I have purchased a number of secret layers. I won't tell you what that number is, but there, I have uh, a, a number of them in my closet, and they're all sealed up, uh, though you do get to redeem them on Magic Online without opening them. So I do have Ricks I can play. Same here. I, I bought that card within like 10 minutes of it becoming available. Shoutouts to Bryant for uh, letting me know the exact moment it went live. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, that card was expensive briefly. It's back down to like basically nothing again. But uh, I feel like it was like seven ticks for a minute there. So this next section, I'm calling bullshit on Phil. You cannot convince me that these are control decks. You go Chalice of the Void into Goblin Rabble Master. I am not calling you a control deck. Take your cards and get out of here. Yeah, I mean, I was going to start this next section by saying like, when we get into this area, we're starting to like shift out of the realm of, of things that we would think of as true control decks and into the things that are, are more stompy decks, more more prison decks. But uh, to paint the full picture here, I, I figured it was worth talking about today. Right. So uh, to, to Bryant's point of, uh, you know, Chalice of the Void is, is not a control card like Wizards, the if you read articles on the Mothership, the main Wizards website, from the people who actually make magic, they will tell you that having your creature Doombladed is a totally different play experience than having that same creature counterspelled. And people react to it differently, even though it's ultimately the same thing. So what is the difference between you know, counterspell your spell versus Trinisphere, you don't get to play it? And... Uh, I know there are differences. Like, I, I understand. Uh, 
Chalice of the Void and Trinisphere are restricted in Vintage for a reason, where Counterspell is not. But uh, they're, they are taking control over some aspect of the game. Uh, and uh, they are denying you the ability to play your game, which is what control decks also do. I don't think you would expect this opinion of me, Brian. Uh, the decks that Phil listed, I don't believe are control decks. That said, Mud, like true Mud, I think is a control deck. Um, when you're playing... Golo Shops is definitely a control deck, by the yeah. way. In vintage. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, like, I'm not a heathen. I know how magic works. But Goblin right. Rabble Master? No, Phil. I'm not going to allow you to feel smart when you're chalicing and attacking me with goblins. You can't do that. Wait, so so if I curve like Counterbalance into Monastery Mentor, that's not a control deck well, either? Well, you still have control deck. Like, your deck is a control deck. You just happen to have an aggressive draw. Ah, that's the same thing to me. That is not... <laughs> no. <laughs> it's pretty close. All right, go ahead, Phil. Say what you're going to yeah. say. Okay, so like just, just real quick on like the Red Prison route, for example... I think the, the 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 common version of like the Moon Stompy deck right now is the Basuda Red deck, which is like the Fireflux Squad build. That's not a control deck. That's an aggro deck. Yeah, but that plays like Eldrazi. Yeah, but I think some of the older versions of it that were like Karn in Staring Bridge, Chalice, Trinisphere, Chandra, that played much more like a, a a control deck. I just don't think those versions are particularly great anymore. Right. Just at at a macro level, I think it's becoming harder and harder to control the game via those sorts of permanents as the answers to permanents get better. Like we're we're seeing more like force of virtues, brazen borrowers, abrupt decays, uh, more free counter spells like force of negation. I, I think it's a, a bit of a harder sell to try to control the game purely via permanence anymore. It's weird, Phil. Um, I know that the uh, this episode is all about control decks, but in a lot of ways, the tr- the traditional control deck has died. Um, we're seeing a little bit of a resurgence with Astrolabe leaving, but I'd argue that the four-color Astrolabe deck before it left was truly a mid-range deck. Like, it was more control than it was mid-range, but it wasn't a true control deck like Miracles. And Miracles doesn't see much play anymore, but I think it, that is a true control deck. Um, we're just seeing less and less of that over the course of Legacy nowadays because the threats, the threats are much better than they've ever been. And it's really hard to take control of all these dynamic threats because they're also different as well. Yeah, Luis, Scott Vargas, uh, I, I listen to the limited resources every time a new set comes out. I mean, I'm not a religious listener, but I do like to get the new set reviews. And the last three or four sets, he has pointed out that looters aren't that good in limited anymore. Like, they used to be insane, because everyone would always run out of gas in Limited, and a looter just fixes that. But you don't really need to value looters highly in Limited anymore, because every card is a cantrip, every creature generates value, you don't run out of things to do. Like, there's just not time to loot anymore, the way there was in, like, 10th edition Limited. And uh, Wizards are just stapling draw a card onto random effects that wouldn't have had that in the past, or they're making things modal, so you always get to use it. Like, the the like the fire printing like keeping velocity going the printing for best of one like those sort of things are all like trickling down into legacy in a way that makes it really hard to be what you're calling a true control deck i think like my definition internally of control has changed a lot in terms of legacy when i started playing legacy control was largely draw go 
like maybe you cast a ponder or a thought seize or an inquisition or something like that but like so many of the initial turns of the control decks were just like past source of plowshares you know past actual factual counter spell and so often now we're seeing tap out threats being a normal part of control decks whether it's oko or uro or or mentor i i think that's that's where we should expect control decks to be. I think just having more mid-rangey cards, more tap-out cards, is is commonplace now. Yep, uh, planeswalkers are the the catalyst of all of that. Um, just a permanent that, you know, by flavor and by design, it's supposed to feel like you cast a spell for free every turn because you summoned your friend to help you out, and uh, you you find that space to stick that Jace. Oh, that was a rhyme. That was great. Uh, but if if you make room to stick a Jace, then you don't have to do anything the rest of the game. Jace will. And uh, just permanents look more like that than they did like uh, Serendipifreet or whatever. That, uh, that That's not the right one. The the one with phasing or like Morphling. Like th- wind conditions don't look like Morphling anymore. So I'm not trying to say that like if you tap mana and you're turning, you're not a control deck anymore. But when we looked at four color control, you had Strix, you had Uro. You had Oko, like your deck didn't play like a control deck. And I think that's part of the reason we saw a lot of people that were used to the miracle style of playstyle complain during the Astrolabe era because they weren't playing the style of control deck that they wanted to. Uh, and to me, like the first, uh, I'm going to use the term tap out control deck here that comes to my mind. I'm sure Brian will remember is five mana Gideon standard. There is a control deck that wanted to tap out every single turn and standard, whether it was a Planeswalker or a Wrath of God, they didn't play a single counter spell. That is tap out control. And um, not that you have to tap out every turn in Legacy to be tap out control, but it was very different from what we had seen previous to that. Yep. Uh, and like the, I don't know if these are real people or hypothetical people, whoever these people are that were like mad that that's not real control, they just don't understand, uh, don't have a full understanding of what control is uh like the like if you start on turn three and like you have to answer this you're dead turn four you answer this you're dead turn five you answer this you're dead turn six you're dead like you are controlling that game your opponent does not have choices to make it's answer this or die and you just ask that question enough times they will die and that's how the epic storm is built right now too like you're not sitting on rituals you're trying to like wish claw talisman defense grid like you're trying to put things into play and I- until your opponent dies. And that that's just a, a direction magic has gone. And you, know, you can be mad about it or you can get used to it and start winning matches. Yeah. So, Phil, you have one other deck listed here. Would you like to elaborate? Yeah, sure. I think there are other control decks that have largely just gone the way of the Dodo because they're just not powerful enough or consistent enough or good enough at answering the various questions that the format is asking right now. And my example of this that I that I wrote down was Pox. Like, I, I love playing a mono black deck, and I get paid to play them all of the time. But, like, when you sign up for that, you you know that if something slips through the discard, it's a huge problem. And you know that if there's something recursive like an Uro that repeatedly draws cards, it's a problem. And I've played with a couple other decks that were like 
control decks of days past where I felt this similar problem. Um, I played Isochron Scepter recently. Like, when I first started playing Legacy, like, Scepter Chant, Scepter Counterspells, like, that was an okay thing to do. It wasn't the greatest, but it was somewhat viable. And then playing that this year was just like, oh no, you're telling me I go down a card to do this, and then I have to wait another turn cycle to activate it, and then I have to pay two mana to do it. And it just felt like such a beating from my side to be fighting as a control deck in that way. Yeah, even your uh, blue red and blue green standstill experiences like that deck doesn't sound good in present day legacy either. <laughs> Was that just a jab? Like, <laughs> no, no. no. Like <laughs> Phil said it himself. Like I'm not just like Phil. Those decks you played suck. Like Phil said, Phil posed the question of me at the earlier in this episode: Is standstill a legacy card anymore? And like if we reframe that into this entire thing we've just been talking about for the last hour and a half, it's uh, the answer is a resounding maybe. What are you doing with it? What frame are you putting it in? Like, do you have Swords of Plowshares backing it up or do you have Ice Fang Quaddle backing it up? Like, what's your plan here? And like, uh, are you trying to win with Uro somehow? Because that's still a spell, despite what Brian thinks. Like, you <laughs> you do... That one was a jab, by the way. Oh, I got uh, that. Like, you... you uh, there, there are things that just aren't that good. And uh, uh, to to my own experience, like I tried so hard to make Court of Cunning and Court of Grace work, just a blue-white monarch or just guy monarch. And like, it's, it, ju- it just isn't quite there. And that has to do with the fact that, you know, threats are better. And when you're trying to build your control deck around a mechanic that is built around combat in the monarch, like that, that's just a fundamental build flaw. All right, so let's pivot into uh, what is probably going to be our final section here. The, the idea of, like, knowing your role and the fact that, like, the control deck isn't always trying to control the game. Yeah, so we talked about this. We we touched on mid-range. We actually ended up talking covering most of the section like we usually do uh, through side tangents earlier on. But, like... Uh, if you're in a control mirror, uh, we're not even talking about mid-range yet, but like if you're in a control mirror, like if you're Bant and they're Grixis, do you know if you're the beatdown? Uh, do you know what your macro plan has to be? Like, do you need to punch a hole with a monastery mentor, like sculpt a hand of three force of wills and just jam that turn three mentor and hope for the best? Um, like, because I've been in that spot against Grixis with miracles where it's just like, I have one force and I have three mana. And I'm going to cast this mentor and it's going to resolve and I win or it's going to get countered and I lose. And because I can't win the end game, but this is the best gambit that I have. Uh, likewise, if you're on the other side, if you know your him to and your pyroblast, you're going to shred the, the matchup. Like, are you going to you know fight over some random thing early on? Like, are you going to fight over force of will a snapcaster mage that's just casting ponder? Or are you just going to deal with that in combat and take the two for one? So like knowing you're going to win later. Like, those are things that you need to know. Um, it, so, and then, do you know how the sideboard changes that? Like, do you have a juke? Do they have a juke? Like, are they bringing... Did you just get... Did you just crush them with your Uro game one, but you know Rest in Peace is coming in game two? How are you going to win that game? So, knowing who the beatdown is and who the control deck is among control decks is very important to success with these sort of decks. 
I think especially when you end up with something like a traditional blue control deck versus something like Death and Taxes, because a lot of times, like, who is the beatdown versus who is the control is very much dependent on what the Death and Taxes player's hand looks like. Because sometimes you have these Death and Taxes games where it's just like, all right, I, I played Thalia into another aggressive threat. I am attacking you for four or five a turn. And then there's these other games where it's just like, I am porting you twice per turn cycle while this Aether Vial is ticking up. Like, I have a firm grasp on this game. I have the inevitability here. I am the control deck. And these these games look totally different. And those games can spin on a dime. Like, you might think you're in one roll, and then one one Vial activation, one draw step completely changes the texture of the matchup. Yep, I've definitely been in that spot where it's like death and taxes. I know they're top decking. Like, I'm sure they've just been holding a land for several turns because they haven't done anything. Uh, they have Vial on three, and my hand is just like, you know, uh, Force of Will, Counterspell, Three Swords to Plowshares, and a Snapcaster Mage. And then they just end step Vial and Sanctum Prelate. Blank hand. New game. <laughs> like, uh-oh. <laughs> Time to figure this out suddenly. So, uh, like, those are the sort of things that can just just break it open and uh, change the roles. I think one of the big things that differentiates a great control player from a fine control player is the ability to pivot. Like, there, there are so many times when you're playing a control deck where, like, you have things locked up and it's time to start closing the game before something you don't anticipate goes wrong. Yes, and I've said various versions of that over the years uh, when I was the only one playing Monastery Mentor and everyone else was still playing Terminus and accumulated knowledge. It's just, I want to end the game and I want to have an eject button against those death and taxes or those mavericks who are going to you know, choke me, port me. Like sometimes sometimes you're, you're thinking like, okay, I'm going to play a long game, but then you just draw Monastery Mentor on turn four and you go Mentor Ponder past the turn with two monks in play. Now you're on D. Like that's you, you got to build your deck to be able to create those situations and you need to know when to fire in on them. And like other times with that same Monastery Mentor, like maybe, you know, they have swords to plowshares from the way they've played. Like there's obviously something there and you just wait till turn six when you have the force of will and lock in that this mentor is going to win the game. So just uh, being able to make those reads and know when to push and when to turtle up uh, are very important. I think a skill you develop really well from playing decks like Maverick or Death and Taxes that have like some controlling elements stapled to creatures is this ability to pivot. Like when when I watch a Maverick player play, like I am watching how they use their Knight of the Reliquary. Because sometimes that's a wasteland machine and just going and firing off three or four wastelands in a row is going to go and lock someone out of the format. And other times, like, you just turn your 5-5 knight sideways four times in a row, and that ends the game. And the path that you choose can result in totally different games in terms of the amount of control and pressure that you put on your opponent. Yep. Uh, I occasionally get asked to play these Knight of the Reliquary Maverick decks, which are not normally in my wheelhouse. And invariably, somebody makes a comment of like, why didn't you attack on like this turn? And then I go back and look at the video and my opponent, my like Hogak opponent is like at seven 
I have a 10-10 knight, and I'm just holding up Bajuka Bog with that knight, just <laughs> for dear life. And I just, like, could have attacked for two or three turns in a row before I figured it out. And, like, it, you gotta you gotta do better than that. Yeah, there have been so many times where I, I've been sitting, like, chatting with Twitch, and I'm just like, oh, Twitch chat, I'm so dead. All they have to do is attack with the knight, and I'm dead. And they just pass the turn, and it's like, oh, 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 oh thank you. They misevaluated their role, and I'm I'm so alive now. I get a couple of turns to try and draw out of this. Yeah, one time went back when I was streaming. Uh, I had a Gideon in my deck, and I I was like dead on board. I had like some creatures, but I was dead on the crack back, and I didn't have a lethal attack. And I drew Gideon, and I'm like, oh yeah, the two two's not going to absorb enough damage. And they're like, what are you talking about? Just emblem your Gideon. Give your team plus one plus one and kill them. And I was like, oh my god, <laughs> good catch. Thanks, Twitch chat, like actual chat lethal. Like th those are just like things that don't come up in my head. Uh, ju just this week, uh, the the smog combo deck I released, there was a turn where I had five mana, green sun zenith, and chain of smog, but my opponent had trinisphere. So I was one mana short. But I had Vraska, four mana Vraska in play, and I just plused her. I was like, plus, go, instead of destroy trinisphere, win the game. Uh, so like th these things are easy to miss but uh people who are dialed in on their decks it, that's why you get your rips that's that's why you test um that's why you you build your deck so you actually understand the cards in it <laughs> like, that's gonna help you a lot all right so zen master brian do you have any uh any closing wise words for us i, f I feel like you were building up to something earlier okay so uh brian's really not gonna like this uh, and that's okay um the, if you've made it this far, this is your payoff. So every deck, every coherent playable magic deck exerts some amount of control on the game. Uh, every single one. Um, I This is a lesson that's come, become very sharp for me when I take the donation decks. And sometimes I get a real mess. And I look at the deck on paper and I'm like, okay, this is, you know, the the plan is coherent. Let's give it a shot. But then I just can't buy a win. And what it ultimately comes down to, I've noticed, is that I am not controlling anything. Like, I'm just, like, throwing cards into play and seeing if they win, which is... And my opponent is making all of the relevant decisions in that game. Um, like, uh, the, this is... the And then, like, I have some sensibilities that I got from other games, like Hearthstone, where spells are different. There are no instants. Um, creatures uh, are the primary tool. Uh, like in Hearthstone, you attack creatures or players. Like you don't just attack and they decide how to block. Like you can attack their two two with your three three, and then your three three keeps the damage on it, so it's a three one now. Like that's just how combat works. And so, like using the board to control the board uh, is is a skill you can learn in other games where combat works a little differently. And there are things that you can do even as an aggro deck to exert control over a game, like. If you have, uh, let's say you're on the play, uh, you go like, you know, Kurt Ape, go, and then turn two, attack, play another Kurt Ape, go, and then they pass back with two blue open. They don't do anything on their turn. Are you going to cast like your third Kurt Ape into their counterspell on curve like that? You could just attack, pass the turn. They wasted that two mana. They wasted that turn cycle. There might have been a ponder they skipped to like leave up that counterspell. And then the next turn, 
they like you know play their third land pass and now like maybe they have something like archmage charm or esper charm in their deck where they want to like draw two and you're in their end step but now you cast your one drop make them cast counterspell then and leave that third mana unspent like you're making them play off curve by playing off curve yourself like you can exert control over your opponent by demanding answers on turns where they want to develop and just punching on turns that they want to answer so uh, there are lots of things that you can do even as a deck without even instance in it uh so uh, like in like a, a deck like zoo or burn or prowess in modern those decks are exerting control over the game because they determine what your opponent is allowed to do they determine how quickly they get to set up how much time they have to set up what sort of answers they need because like lightning bolt might not answer a prowess creature if you have mutagenic growth so like there's a lot of or they have to spend removal on their turn in case you pump your your prowess creatures like uh, there there is a lot of control that can be exerted by every single deck that has a coherent plan am i allowed to talk now he's ready he's been like (laughs) biting his microphone this whole time just because you're playing off curve or your deck has interaction in it doesn't mean that you're a control deck that means that you're able to play a coherent game of magic like yes your aggro deck might have you know a pump spell on it or even a sideboard negate that does not mean that you are a control deck that means that you have the ability to play a meaningful game of magic the gathering well it mean I didn't say they're control decks. I said coherent decks exert some amount of control on the game. And like it's easy to just say like if you pull like any of the top 10 decks off MTG Goldfish, you're going to have a reasonable time. Like you're going to play some back and forth magic and there will be interaction points that you have control over or you can exert control over. But if you're like brewing for yourself or if you're digging deep to make a pet deck work like sorry pox but the like phil gets a bunch of pox donation decks there was a strip strip where i played uh pox and every possible splash color over the course of like a month and i think i went like one and 19 across those four leagues and it's because pox is not exerting control over anything that matters and like that's just not a a, a good deck or a I, I have a, a video coming up, and I'm not going to give too many spoilers, but the the deck had a very clear plan of what it was trying to do, but it did nothing to interact with the opponent. And uh, I'm pretty sure I 0-5 that league easily. Uh, I might have won for it, a one where my opponent just like got mana screwed twice. But the deck was not capable of winning a game because it did not exert any sort of control. It didn't maintain a battlefield presence. It didn't challenge anyone on the stack. didn't have discard. Like It just threw its cards into play and lost so uh, this this might be advice that's better for a a brewer or a new player than the seasoned person who would still be listening two hours into a legacy podcast but you you do need to like really consider what what resistance can your deck offer uh, to other decks and if the answer is none your deck is i'd like to think that all of our listeners listen to the entire episode brian and i am offended for them that you think our dedicated fan base would not stick it out all right let's test uh if you did not listen this far please comment (laughs) (laughs) strong 
All right. Well, I hope everyone but Bryant got something out of that. Like, it's kind of uh, theory. It's kind of heady. It also might not. It might be things that everyone is just doing naturally because they know how to play magic. But I, I just being able to think about how your aggro deck or control deck or or your aggro deck or your mid range deck can exert control over what a control player's options like flip the script by like doing something unexpected playing off curve or whatever it is uh like all of that they will convert into game wins if you're able to uh really figure out how that to works. relate it to some of my combo friends uh i've been a pretty firm believer in making fun of this for years but a lot of ant players like to say that they are a control deck that is not true you're a combo deck that can play the control role there is a difference between being a control deck and decks that can play different roles, which was kind of my point before Brian so rudely cut me off. Uh, but joking aside, being able to play different roles is very important, and that's what Brian was trying to express, and I don't disagree with him on that. Um, it actually is a very good skill to have. Uh, there's a lot of matchups where I'm playing a, my Epic Storm deck, and I'm facing a control deck, and I feel as if I'm the control deck because I'm making them do anything before i'm willing to budge like if they want to play lango i will win that game i will draw my tendrils of agony and they will lose um so there's also sub games that happen within a lot of these matchups you have to consider and the back and forth isn't always on the table yeah i was i was very surprised with how patiently you were playing tes when we played that league together last week there were so many times where i'm like all right so we're good to go right and brian's like but why why would you do that we're we're playing this great game that we want to be playing right now. We we can manipulate them into like being in a worse position before we have to go for it. Definitely. A lot of questions yeah, I ask uh, when I'm doing tutoring session is what do you gain by doing this? I and I say that to myself internally a lot when I'm playing by my own. What do you gain by, you know, casting this ponder or brainstorm? If your hand is five good cards, if you brainstorm, you're putting two good cards back most likely. Why don't you know stick it out, draw a couple bad cards, then cast brainstorm, that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, those are definitely legacy lessons that uh happen all the time. Um like uh regardless of what Rich Callie says in his articles about how to brainstorm or ponder, like I will frequently just be sitting with like counterspell, ponder, ponder, brainstorm in my hand. If, as long as I'm not missing land drops, I'll just sit on that for a while uh, in certain matchups. Uh, my Shark Still video that is coming out soon, uh, you'll see me do that, where it's just, you know, what am I looking for? What do I gain? Uh, that's a great question. Um, uh, I, I I was reminded just now, I know we're running long, we'll wrap this up soon, but uh, I was reminded just now uh, that I played against Emma Handy in uh, the last Star City Envy that I played in, and... I was on Saltai Urza, the deck that I won the GP with the next weekend, and she was on Infect, and she attacked with a Glistener Elf, and I blocked with Gilded Goose, and we just let damage resolve, and then Goose was a negative 1-1, and then I went to my turn, and we played out more game, and the next turn she moved in on like some pump spells on that same Glistener Elf, and I fatal pushed it, and she was like, oh, did you just draw that? And I was like, no, I had it last turn too, and she's like, oh, I thought you would have cast it last turn. And I was just like, why? <laughs> My Gilded Goose is just as good as a, as a negative 1-1 one, one, as it is as a 0-2. And like, just those sort of, like, I could have fired in Fatal Push and just died for it. But instead, I got an extra draw step and just, you know, be patient. 
exert control where you can. Uh, I I had control of that game where the onus was on her to make a move and take your freebies where you can get them. So what we're trying to say here is that we are all the control deck on the inside. I hope you enjoyed this episode uh, and that Phil, I'll let you say that Death and Taxes is a control deck. But most importantly, Tempo is also control. And Combo is also control. And Prison is also control. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We hope you enjoyed, folks. We'll see you again in two weeks.